I am Alon Ben Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is David Schenker, director of the program on Arab politics at the Washington Institute. Previously, he served in the office of the Secretary of Defense as the 11th country director, the Pentagon's top policy aide on the Arab countries of the Levant, where he was responsible for advising the Secretary and other senior Pentagon leadership on the military and political affairs of Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and the Palestinian territories. You can find his full bio on the page for this episode. So, so you know, I met with a friend, of course, to, to tell just now we, we talked a lot about Syria, and uh, perhaps we can talk about more regional, you know, Israeli-Palestinians. Uh, sure. Uh, I, I want to start with, with the question of Jerusalem. Of course, you know, as I see it, to make such a move could be disastrous on the one hand in terms of what would be the reaction of the Palestinians, but even most of the Arab world, Saudi Arabia, Jordan in particular, they'll be outraged to say the least. I had the idea, and I sort of balanced it. I said, if he still wants to make the move, how can we use that as a means by which to achieve even almost a breakthrough in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? And that is, if he were to say, we have land there, United States purchased land in West Jerusalem, on which you know the plan was to build the American embassy there. But of course, from one administration to another, everything has been delayed and delayed. That is, we are going to start building the embassy, and if there is progress in the peace process between the two sides, we will reserve to allow the Palestinians to have their capital in East Jerusalem. Suppose this would have been the approach. I mean, my feeling was that if he were to take this approach, and I passed it on to very top people, and they were very excited about the prospect in terms of he's basically conditioning the move on the fact that is we're building the embassy so the Palestinians can see a movement in that direction. It is no longer just a talk, but also is providing the opening. If we, there is a progress and you move toward peace agreement, well, we will look into it that the Palestinian capital will be still there while maintaining the unity of Jerusalem. Nothing will change. Basically, what is Israeli and Israeli, including East Jerusalem, what is a Palestinian is a Palestinian. The city will remain united, a single city, but it will have one municipality here, one municipality there, and they will find a way, of course, to work it out administratively uh, in terms of security and all of that. I, from my perspective, when I used to go in the 80s and the 90s, before this mess, uh, more in, uh, increased terrorism, I wrote many pieces that Jerusalem represented, in my view, was the microcosm of Israeli-Palestinian coexistence. You couldn't tell then who was an Israeli, who was a Palestinian. The people were moving you know, from Israel to the West Bank and back and forth. And Jerusalem was the center of peace. People actually coexisted very peacefully. And to me, I said, this is how the Israeli-Palestinian should be, you know, it's going to look like. There is a political border, but there's no physical border, per se a Palestinian citizen or is going to be vote and be elected in Palestine and Israel, mm -hmm. but there will be intermingling work here. You know, 
That's how I saw it. This was a piece I wrote, but I didn't publish it yet because I wanted to channel it to the right people. What's your take on this? Well, you, there's a couple issues. So I think Trump is convinced that this is something that should be done. People in Washington ask, well, what can they get from Israel for this? Because traditionally, if you get a big, a big gift from the United States, something like this, there would be a request on the backside from Israel. But there hasn't been anything. Now, I, I don't necessarily think that you have to, I mean, you, what you're proposing in a way is, is changing the status quo, right? There's no change in status quo by moving the U.S. Embassy to West Jerusalem, right? Even Arafat recognized that West Jerusalem was going to be part of Israel, right? This was never, this, this, is this was true, never but, in, but symbolically, in question. We're more symbolically, moving the embassy anywhere in Jerusalem. For them, is represent recognition of Jerusalem. Well, I, well there's, a, there's, a, there's an issue of, of perception, but yeah, of course, yeah. the U.S. Consul General, which is the highest this representation, is, is, true. is in the East Jerusalem, right? right? Yeah. So I, let's put that aside for a second. I think that you know, if you wanted to ask the Israelis for something, you could potentially. I don't think you're going to get from this government uh, in Israel a, a commitment that East Jerusalem will be the capital, that we're going to deal with issues of sovereignty or division of Jerusalem. Now, most Israelis, as you know, would be willing to divide Israel, uh, more Israelis anyway, would be willing to divide Jerusalem than, you know, and have two, you know, two capitals there, than be willing to cede the Golan, you know, back to the Syrians. Uh, yeah. I mean, so you know, some... in every negotiation in the past, Jerusalem, when the discussion on Jerusalem was under the table, there was an agreement in principle that Jerusalem is going to be yeah. basically a capital of two states. Right. I, th I think what you'd need for the Israelis to make some sort of enormous move in that regard would be some sign of good faith on the Palestinian side. Remember, we've been frozen now, essentially, yeah, yeah, since yeah, day yeah. one of the Obama administration when the administration basically forced Netanyahu to have what was the, the deepest settlement freeze in the history of, of Israel, right, of, of modern, you know, Likud politics. He did it, and Mahmoud Abbas said, hey, why, why the hell am I going to give Israel anything right now? I got this great settlement freeze, and they wasted a year, and you couldn't twist the Israelis' arms anymore after that point. Uh, this was a failure, obviously, of the Obama administration. Now, maybe the Palestinians will be so discouraged from the Trump administration that they'll be more willing to make their own concessions, um, which, which you know, maybe you can get from the Israelis another settlement freeze, maybe, you know, within the current boundaries of the settlements, no new... You can get something if the White House engages, but they're not going to ask for anything unless you get something very serious from the Palestinians. And I think, you know, this, this embassy move is something that, you know, the Israelis are, I think, happy about, the government is happy about. But for most people, it's not... Probably not, well, that big a, not that big a deal. Yeah, but also it seems at this point, I think, you know, the, the, the Trump administration are sort of moving back away, back up a bit of moving. Well, the, this is going to be a process. It's going right? to be a long process. So they're talking about process. My, my feeling was that if they were to incorporate this into that kind of thinking, into that kind of process, they're going to send a clear message to the Palestinians, hey, we're thinking about you. We believe still in two-state solution. 
we can move in that direction, but you need to make, make yourself, you know, stop incitement, stop this, stop that, do, do the kind of thing, begin infrastructure, build your real infrastructure in order for us, for us to make that kind of, I mean, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. The big deal for me is that you really have to work with the Jordanians on this, right? You have this Jordanian special relationship with Jerusalem that of goes course, back to Mecca and Medina. Then of you course. had, you know, then you had the the annexation in 1950 of the West Bank and the declared sovereignty over Jerusalem by the Jordanians. You know, they stepped back from that, but 1994, the peace agreement includes that. They still derive some of their legitimacy from their guardianship role in Jerusalem. And I think you have to have the U.S. government, regardless of what happens, continue to reiterate uh, that the Jordanian role in Jerusalem is a priority, that there's no change in status quo, the holy spots. It is no doubt. But, but the Palestinians can be a real spoiler here. And I'm not talking about the 60% uh, or more of Jordan that is of Palestinian origin. I'm talking about the Palestinian Authority deliberately trying to shake the neighbors through incitement because of this embassy move. That's very dangerous and uh, something that I think should be punished. Frankly, um, right. you know, if the Palestinians can play a real spoiler role here, then the United States can talk to the Palestinians and make their own commitments to what they're willing to do and what they're willing to advocate for on behalf of the Palestinians. But if the PA chooses to go along with Iran to say that this is the destruction of Al-Aqsa Mosque, to do, I mean, you can imagine what they're going to say when this happens. Then I think there's got to be a pretty big penalty. That's imposed from the United States yeah. for shaking the stability of the neighbors. Yeah, this is this is true. But let's leave Jerusalem for a moment. You know, the whole discussion. You know, we're trying to establish. I've been trying to. I've been thinking about it, talking so much about it, writing so much about it. My feeling was, and I've been actually very much involved with the French organizing this conference and suggested proposal in terms. Of my feeling is that I want to just hear your take on this. That is, we first need to establish whether the Palestinians, in fact, want to state solution. So there's that in the Israeli mind, whether this is, in fact, what Mahmoud Abbas would like to see, the end game. There will be a Palestinian state, more or less in the West Bank with some major, certainly land swap, etc. My position is that even if both sides agree to the principle, I don't believe Netanyahu would like to see a Palestinian state under his watch either. But even if there is that kind of decision, that kind of commitment to a two-state solution on the part of both sides, they cannot possibly sit today and negotiate that because the very deep distrust between the two sides, because a very deep sense of insecurity both sides have, both sides, not just the Israelis. The Israelis will have that because of historical experiences, but the Palestinians feel just as insecure, if not more so, than the Israelis. And then, of course, you have these two constituencies, both extremists in Israel, settlers and their supporters, and then you have Hamas on the part of the Palestinians, who still envision we're going to have it all, all of Palestine, Israel, Palestine together. So you have these three elements at play, and no one can actually deny that. This is just a fact. So to be able to begin any kind of serious process, to negotiate seriously and reach some kind of an agreement, you're going to need a process first of reconciliation. That's something coming. But I'm saying all along that if you don't have that kind of process of reconciliation, whereby you can mitigate question of distrust, at least a process of mitigating distrust, and begin to mitigate concern over national security, 
stopping the assignment on the part of these of the Palestinians and taking measures to convince Israelis that this Lincoln could be another Hamastan in, in the West Bank, so mm. to speak. And then disabuse. I mean, can you convince the Israelis there's uh, not going to be a Hamas stand in the, the West Bank? I mean, no, I think, well, no, what I'm saying no is it's not a true argument. If there's no Israeli occupation of the West Bank, you probably is, already have a Hamas stand there. This, but I'm saying is only through process. That is, you cannot argue, you cannot discuss trust and say, from now on, I'm going to trust you. That's not going to happen. You cannot distrust security and say, from now on, I can, you know, our security is guaranteed, your security. That's not going to happen. That's what I'm saying is you need a process for a period of time before they actually can sit down and negotiate. Now, if they're not prepared to go through that kind of process, to me, it's a clear indication neither side is willing to, in fact, to see the end game, which is a two-state solution. That is, if you're not prepared to prepare the ground for what eventually needs to happen, should happen, which is two states, if that's the goal, if that's the objective, that's what Netanyahu says. That's what Mahmoud Abbas said. But they are taking zero action. In fact, in fact, they're doing everything the opposite to you know, widen the gap rather than narrow the gap. What I've been saying to the French in preparation for the guy said, if you, you want to be helpful, introduce the concept of reconciliation first for two years, three years, and make sure that actually the Badu side will be prepared to make that kind of, go through that kind of process. Yeah, it's pretty hard to get a process of reconciliation going when you have stuff like happened in the UN Security Council when people <laughs> come and, and declare, you know, the settlements, whatever they're going to declare them and prepare, lay the ground for more lawfare. I think that this, while it may not be people knifing one another, I think the Israelis view this as a full-on you know, yeah, attack but the, by but Palestinians. Yeah, but Israel invited that kind of resolution. Israel is inviting the European resistance yeah. to this whole thing. I mean, you cannot say that Israel is an innocent party here. Netanyahu is, works, is working very, very hard. I mean, his ambitions are probably just to realize what Shamir at the time was advocating. Let's put one million Israelis, and they're coming very close to this number in the West Bank, create irreversible facts on the ground, and that's the end of There will be no Palestinian. De facto, it's going to be a Palestinian state anymore. So I, my feeling is that if the uh, Trump administration begins to think in those terms, Rather than thinking, let's get the party to sit down and negotiate, whether it's Kushner's involved, God is involved, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. You know, I think actually Bush had this right, which was, you know, essentially saying, okay, you have settlement blocks. The Palestinians have essentially agreed to territorial swaps. And you can build as many buildings and high as you want to build them and as wide as you want to build them with it, as long as they remain within these current existing boundaries, right? If you want to build another room on your house, this is not building a settlement. If you want to build another floor on your apartment building going up, this is not building settlements. I think President Bush, you know, worked out this deal with Elliot Abrams, with Daryl Sharon, and they all accepted it. And it actually makes a great deal of sense. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know why you know, parties persist in saying, you know, that this is somehow, you know, a bad solution to the problem. If you've already agreed on territorial swaps, then what would be the problem with that and declaring these, you know, more settlements and 
No, they're, you know, these are cities in any event, right? We're talking about these big blocks. Of course. Tens of they're thousands of people. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, we can talk, you know, if you want, about the hilltops and about Israeli government and the Knesset now changing the laws in Israel about settlements and things like that. And I think, uh, you know, this may present more problems in the international community. Um, well, of course, but, yeah. But, of course, the international community was never interested, no matter what Israel does, it's not going to really be quite enough, I mean, right? I mean, the, the fact yeah, that the yeah. UN, you know, Human Rights Commission has tripled the condemnations last year than it had of Syria or Russia or the Assad regime. I mean, it's ludicrous, right? Yeah, but I what mean, would you do? What would you do? In a, yeah, watching from the outside. Okay, there was an agreement on land swap just in every, every, every negotiation that took place since yeah. 2000. With it at Camp David. There's no doubt about it. And Israel today is claiming we are expanding, not, we are building in existing settlements, not in, we're not building in new ones. Mm. We are mainly for just to accommodate natural growth right. in the settlement. And so the Palestinians should not be complaining. We're not changing the geography. And right. The problem with the Palestinians is Israelis always, all along, also insisted it's got to be one agreement that you cannot unilaterally continue to expand or build in these settlements unless it is part and parcel of a general agreement. What is going to be the precise land swap? What's going to take place? How contiguous is going to be? The quality of the land we're going to... There was no real agreement on these issues. Yeah. And so for the, when I talked to the Palestinians, they said, we agree to the land swap. We, are, we understand that Israelis need to expand this for natural growth, but that's got to be a part and parcel of any agreement that we're going to have. The, the problem is, as, as, and I think they raise it, and tell me what you think, please. They are saying, you know, when the negotiation under, with the, under the U.S. Uh, no, auspices was carried twice, Israel insisted to start a negotiation on security, national security. And then the Palestinians are saying, well, if we're going to negotiate, let's start, start with the contour of how the Palestinians are going to look like. So once if we establish the land swap, mm. then even if the agreement is not totally completed, once there is a contour of the state, you can continue to build in these, you know, once they have an, that kind of understanding. Mm. But Netanyahu refused to start with establishing how the a Palestinian state is going to look like. There were many other issues, you know, as far as how the negotiation went bad, you know, the, the, the rules of engagement were a mess, as far as I'm concerned. I don't think anything has changed. Anything has changed. But I'd like you to think, tell me what you think. We cannot think in terms of Netanyahu government or the rights of center and Israel is going to remain forever. I mean, it's going to change. Something is going to change. What, the, the right of center? Possibly or like center. Like Lapid or something right, like, like that. center. If not right, well, right now they're right of center. But let's say center, perhaps it's slightly left of center. How? Well, this is the problem. I mean, you know, I mean, that's, 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 like, that's like saying that Congress is going to change to Democrat in two years, right? I well, mean, it's uh, possible. Well, it's possible, it's but possible. if you look at the seats that are up, it looks like it's going to go the other way in the, in the, in the Senate, et cetera. I mean, we you can't know. rule the possibility that the Israeli opposition come to their senses one morning, Herzog and Lapid and others, and say, look, enough is enough. We better organize ourselves. Five years are going to be way too late. And let us have a united, one single agenda, 
this is going to be our agenda, let's campaign on this agenda, tell the Israelis the truth about the eventuality if, if no peace is established with the Palestinians, where Israel will be 5, 10, 15 years down the line. So I'm not, not saying that Israel is wrong or, or right. What I'm saying in terms of looking at it, uh, if you believe in two-state solution, you've got to think in those terms today what are the steps you need to take in order to get you in that direction. When you ask Israeli official Bennett and others, where do you think Israel will be in five, ten years, they don't have an answer. They really don't know. They have a, uh, an illusion about we're going to take over the entire West Bank, but what are you going to do with the Palestinians? Are they going to disappear? What would you tell uh, Netanyahu today about his plan? What is the plan that they have? I'm serious. If well, you were to ask him. Everybody comes up, you know, they have, everyone's got their, what they call here, their alternative facts. But, you know, the numbers are in dispute. But, you know, if you listen what President Obama says or Secretary of State Kerry, that, you know, it's not going to be able to be a, you know, a democratic and Jewish state. Uh, I think there are many in Israel who, who disagree with that. Um, you know, based on the numbers that I've seen, you know, I, I don't think I'd want to be absorbing the West Bank uh, into Israel. I think it, you know, poses a, you know, a, a grave you know, demographic threat. But if you want to maintain the Jewish character of the state, right, you're already got 20% non-Jewish in Israel proper, you know, within the Green Line. But, uh, you know, he's, maybe they're planning on getting another million Russians. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, no, no, but I'm I serious. Don't, I don't know. What's your real... If you were to, to sit in, te, in a Netanyahu show, you were to advise. I mean, yet, he, I'm, he, I'm, I'm being not well, no, Israelis vote, about it. Israelis vote based on whether they believe that they have a peace partner, right? This is why you know, they voted for, for Rabin, you know, they voted for people on the left, they voted for people on the right, but that generally has changed over time based on whether they think that you know, Arafat was a peace partner, whether he was not a peace partner, um, and I don't think any Israelis really think that Mahmoud Abbas is going to be the guy that makes the concession on the right of return, for example, the quote-unquote no, right I, of return. I, I agree with you. I don't think either Abbas or Netanyahu will be the leaders who will achieve an agreement. So, you know, if you're going to take you know, the old line, the old saw from the Clinton administration was, you know, you have to take risks for peace. And I think that... Many Israelis probably say, and I don't do a great deal of work on Israel. I mean, I follow it, but I don't. I spend a lot more time in Lebanon than I do uh-huh. in Israel. But you know, my sense is that many Israelis say, "Well, they took a great risk for peace, and it didn't work out." And they don't. Most of them say, "Oh, it's not our fault. Like we wanted, you know, we signed Oslo, we gave them territory A, we wanted to give them territory B, and uh, we just didn't have a partner, right? We." gave them territory, they tried the Korean A, they tried to bring in weapons, they launched an intifada. And yeah, that's and that's sad. I mean an argument that is, you know Well but I think I think a lot of uh, perhaps is the majority of Israelis who buy that. They buy that, albeit it is not uh, it is not the truth in terms of how Israelis left Gaza under what condition, with no agreement overnight, without any security arrangement, without any any economic arrangement. I mean, you know, what do you expect? Hamas won the election. They feel they are entitled. It's been stolen away from them. I mean, that's that's how it is. That's how this. So, but Israel has been, you know, swallowed the narrative of the government success. You know, 
look what happened in Gaza, do we should we create another one in the West Bank? And we're saying, well, if you want to make a deal with the West Bank, you're not going to withdraw overnight. Take 10 years. You have to establish such solid, strong relationship between the two sides to develop such very strong vested interest by both parties yeah. that the peace is the only practical alternative. You can have a three-state solution, right? Israel and the West Bank, and then, you know... Gaza. The Gaza, the yeah. land of Gaza. Yeah, poor Gazans, really. I mean, you it, know, the yeah. Israelis resign themselves to the fact that Gaza can be, would be a state, and they will not object to that. They have no interest in Gaza, other than keep it peaceful. And if Hamas wants to have a state, let them have a state, as long as they give up, stop building tunnels, and stop provoking Israel. Well, That's what I hear. Yeah, as long as a leopard changes its stripes, <laughs> it's not a leopard anymore, right? You know, this is, a, this is not a Hamas at that point, yeah, right? Yeah. I want to take advantage of your time a little yeah, bit yeah, because yeah. You're, you're, you're field in Lebanon. And, and um, uh, what is your take? I mean, Lebanon is basically uh, a two states to a great extent. I mean, uh, they used we, to call it a house of many mansions. Yeah, house of many mansions is more so. I don't anticipate Hezbollah any time to regroup. We don't know what's going to be in Syria after and they have not gotten so deep in Syria. But at one point, where do you see this is going in Lebanon? From the future of Lebanon as an entity and the future of, of, of Hezbollah. Let us say they are, I want to start with the, with the proposition, let us say they are back, they're going to come back at one point. Where is it going to go? Listen, uh, Hezbollah has experienced great losses in Syria, yeah. 1,500 or more soldiers, militiamen being killed, but they've also developed new capabilities, right? The ability to move and fire, logistics, mobility, things that they didn't have before. I mean, they were basically an ambush force in Lebanon. Now they are an expeditionary force. Yes. And they have absorbed the casualties. Many people at home you know, in Lebanon are not happy about that. They are going to be deployed in Syria for some time. Exactly, um, yeah. But when these guys come home, the question is, what are they going to do? Well, some of them will be dispatched, deployed elsewhere by Iran, right? These guys have been through Yemen. They've been through Iraq. Um, we'll see where they... They put them next, right? They are now part of Iran's expeditionary force. That right. includes the uh, Iranian-backed Shiite militias of Iraq, what they call the uh, the Afghani Fatimids, these Afghanistan Shiites um, who are fighting all over the region. But if they go back to Lebanon, I think they these guys are unemployed, right? And uh, not employable necessarily. They create a bit of problem potentially for Hezbollah at home. Um, these guys are, you know, warriors, you know, battle-hardened Hezbollahis that were getting, you know, battle pay and status on the battlefield who can't read or write back at home, don't necessarily have any prospects, uh, employment opportunities, integration into society, you know, and Hezbollah may not be in a position to pay for these folks, depending on, you know, what type of largesse uh, Iran continues to provide after the you know, operations start to wind down in Syria. Nonetheless, uh, they are somewhat constrained. 
Um, if you remember back in 2006, when Hezbollah and Israel went to war for 34 days, Hezbollah, you know, essentially was free to operate from Lebanon, from the south. Um, and their, their constituents who lived in the south fled, by and large, to the north. They went to Beirut, they went to Dahia, they went uh, elsewhere in Lebanon and were taken in by the Sunnis and the Christians. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and they went to Syria, where they were taken in by the Syrians. Um, but the problem is, you know, after helping to kill the better part of 500,000 mostly Sunni Muslims in Syria, Hezbollah is not going to be welcome in many places in Lebanon and they can't go to Syria. Uh, and I'm talking about the Shia of the yes, South yes, of Lebanon. Yes. So, uh, you know, Hezbollah can't necessarily turn their attentions immediately to Israel. Uh, they can try and have this sort of uh, base of operations from the Syrian Golan. Uh, but I don't think Israel's going to buy that. I think Israel will retaliate against Hezbollah not only in the Golan, but also anyway, in yeah, Lebanon, yeah, in um, Lebanon for their operations. Or in Syria, for yeah, yeah, well, yeah. We have both. I mean, Syria, certainly. But yeah. I think if something is more serious, Israel will have no compunction to go after Hezbollah in Lebanon. So Nasrallah is not, you know, is not an idiot. Um, and he has constituents. And he cares about what the Shia in Lebanon think about Hezbollah. So, um, you know, this is a problem. On the other hand, you have the politics of Lebanon. Uh, you now have a new president who is nominally aligned with Hezbollah, but is not, as we know, entirely reliable, right? Yeah, Aoun is a um, proven megalomaniac. Um, we don't know what he'll do. I mean, even um, Shel Sleiman, the former Lebanese president, who was the head of the, the general staff, um, head of the Lebanese armed forces, you know, Hezbollah approved him, and he was great for you know, five years, or Hezbollah thought he was doing just a fine job for four or five years, and then he started to say bad things about the resistance. And all of a sudden, Suleiman was no good. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, with Aoun, this guy's a wild card, uncontrollable. Um, we'll see where he goes. Um, Hezbollah's position in the government is assured, um, but this is basically a hamstrung government. They can't even decide on a new electoral law to go back to elections. That's right, yeah. You know, they want to do all this offshore drilling, like Israel has all this natural gas. There's supposedly a couple billions of dollars worth of gas and oil offshore in Lebanon, 5,000 feet under the, under the med. But, um, you know, who's going to bid on that? Right? The oil prices are low. The gas prices are low right now. And it's volatile. And Hezbollah keeps on threatening, you know, as a history of threatening Israeli gas facilities. They can't put up the bid, these, these sites on the border, because they, Lebanon refuses to delineate its border. This may be more trouble than anybody wants. And then you add on top of that, you know, the Americans, everybody else is telling the Lebanese, hey, if you want to export this, Israel's building a pipeline to Turkey. Share the pipeline with them. The Lebanese say, no, don't you know we're at war with Israel? And so, therefore, they're going to send this stuff back to shore. They're going to have to build an LNG facility. They're going to put this stuff on a boat, and it's going to cost. They're going to price themselves out of the market, and nobody's going to, nobody's going to bid on these gas fields. So, it's a, as they'd say, it's a, it's a shame for Lebanon. Poor Lebanon, right? They are so remarkable in so many ways, so mm -hmm. entrepreneurial, 
such a vibrant society, and yet they have the sort of intractable problems or their own worst enemies. Yeah. I mean, also demographically, the, the Muslims are uh, much larger. At least sixty percent now of Lebanon, fifty-five, sixty. Yeah, no more. I mean, uh, listen, when uh, you know Lebanon's last census was in nineteen forty-three, so <laughs> we don't we don't really know. But some people know. They they have voter rolls. Some people have to go back to their villages and vote in Lebanon, and they vote based on their their sect. And you know, it's widely believed that the Shia are something like thirty-eight percent, and the Sunni are like thirty-five percent now. You know, Christians and you know, tiny population of Druze and different yeah, kinds of Christians. Yeah. But you know, the, the Christians are you know still a sizable percentage of the population, but yeah. uh, but they're not believed to be any yeah, longer the majority. The majority, and, majority yeah. and you know, the Taif, yeah. you know, gives them fifty percent of the parliament, uh, the the office of the president. The premier is a Sunni, the speaker of the parliament. Yeah, is the, the same, Shia, the same kind of the same arrangement, except yeah. except the president now, the president's office is weak. Yeah, right. Speaker, yeah, it's very weak. Well, he's a symbol of the nation, but he has no he has no power, um, just for appointments and things like that, and agraman for ambassadors. So you know the Christians they can vote from abroad, but they still play an enormous role in the state, um, and uh, they're trying to have a new electoral law, which some of the, the, the Shiites want, the Hezbollah wants to change it so that it's a proportionality. Right, they're going to sort of reopen the can of worms at its type accord. Um, but well, it will know, be dominantly Muslim. Well, it is, you know, it's dominantly Muslim in a way right now yeah, because right now, yeah, even though 60 of yeah. those seats in parliament out of the 120 yeah. are Christian, say, yeah. um, the vast majority of them were elected by Sunnis. Yeah. You know, or, th- you know, 30 of them for 30 of those seats well, are elected by Sunnis. The question is, will they accept? I mean, the, uh, the, the Hezbollah and. and uh, the Sunni will accept that kind of political arrangement for how much longer they will they go along with that. You know, what do you, what, how do you see it? Well, listen, I think that some people are pushing to reopen Taif, change the electoral law. I mean, the electoral law is, I think, genuinely bad. It's the remnants of the, of the Syrians, right, that intentionally sought to weaken the Christians in, in Lebanon. They can make some minor changes. I'm not sure they're going to get consensus on this. And, not the least reason uh, why is because people like Wally Jumblat, uh, the Druze leader of Lebanon, you know, if they went to strict proportionality, he would lose seats. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, in parliament, et cetera, and lose his own sort of political key sort of you know, swing vote in the parliament. Um, so I'm not sure he'd be willing to accept that either. But I think there's a general trepidation about reopening this, right? You've not had, surprisingly, right? Even though Hezbollah has helped kill all these Sunni Muslims next door, Lebanon's been pretty quiet. You know, yeah, two years very, ago, very surprising. Yeah, two years ago, you had uh, you know nineteen uh, attacks, suicide bombs, car bombs, things like that. But you haven't really had anything over the past year and a half. You have. To what do you attribute that? To? Well, you've well a couple things. One is that you've had uh, the Sunni Minister of Interior, Nuhad Mashnu, has been in close cooperation with Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the United States that is providing not only intelligence, but $100, $150 million a year to the Lebanese Armed Forces. And, you know, intelligence sharing with the Lebanese Armed Forces, and they're sharing it with Hezbollah in turn, right? They have an effective security apparatus at home, and everybody's cooperating to fight Sunni extremism. Now, in the long run, 
I think the Sunnis in Lebanon are going to get bent out of shape about this arrangement, right? You have, you know, the poorest people in Lebanon, this is the, also one of these mm-hmm. sort of old things that, oh, the, the, the Shia are the downtrodden. You know, this is back in the days of Musa Sadr. Not anymore. The Shia are doing quite fine, thank you. Go up north in Lebanon to the Sunni areas north of Tripoli. 50% of the homes don't have indoor plumbing. You know, I was up there on the border in, in Wadi Khaled, on the Syrian border, seeing all these Syrian refugees. And uh, these refugees have destitute, right? They get $125 a month if they're lucky for a family of 10 from right, the United right, Nations. Right. Almost nothing. And then you go visit a Lebanese family up there, and they're saying, hey, how come these refugees are getting so much and I'm getting nothing? These guys don't have running water. They have Nobody in the family is employed. It's awful. Um, so it's really the Sunnis that are in the worst shape. And sooner or later, well, I think they're going to get annoyed about getting pushed around um, by the Shia, by Hezbollah. But, you know, we've only seen small pockets of that. And uh, everybody's agreed that the big enemy are the Takfiris, right? They bought the Hezbollah line. I, you know, personally, it's the Sunni extremists are a problem, but so are Shiite extremists, mm-hmm. you know? And I think... Lebanon's a state that can't do anything about that. But part of the problem there is that for the past eight years, the Obama administration didn't have a Lebanon policy. Right? They had no I goals, yeah. no, no focus, yeah. no attention. The sole element of the U.S. policy in Lebanon was, well, let's say two. One is we're going to give the LAF, the Lebanese Armed Forces, $100, $150 million a year, buy them some weapons, give them some money for the internal security forces, domestic counterterrorism mission. And the other thing is that we're going to, do some financial sanctions against Hezbollah. Yeah, um, yeah. Other than that, there was no Lebanon policy, and I think it was a real you know, wasted period of time because in 2009, the Lebanese went to the, the ballot boxes and they voted in a pro-West parliament, yeah. right? The, the good guys beat Hezbollah, yeah. and we didn't do anything. I, I don't think the Trump administration is going to do much, going to do any different. Do you think they're going to change any policy towards Lebanon? I mean, do they have the, <laughs> the time at this juncture to even think about Lebanon? Well, I mean, let's see. Um, you know, they're, they're, if you talk to people like it or listen to what people like um, Mattis has been saying, um, that we're going to have to push back against Iran and the region about its regional destabilization, about its sort of predatory foreign policy. Part of that will be to, you know, not only militarily to take some actions in places like the Gulf when the Iranian fast boats harass you know, U.S. destroyers and things like that. But there's other steps, political steps, um, other types of ways we can push back against Iran. And one of those places that traditionally, I mean, the Bush administration certainly competed with the Iranians was in Lebanon. Yeah, and um, yeah. so, I, you know, I think it was productive to do so. Um, we didn't win, but we participated in the battle of ideas. Um, and I think that there are, will be some in the Trump administration that want to do this. I mean, you just got uh, Joel Rayburn appointed uh, director in the, in the NSC. Um, he's interested in Lebanon. I don't know what he's going to do, but he's a smart guy, um, former lieutenant colonel, and done a lot of work on Lebanon, among other issues. So, you know, maybe they'll engage on this. I hope so. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see what's going to happen. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page. And stay tuned 
to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.